We're now going to move into a time where I'm going to preach God's word to us. And tonight's message is going to be a topical one rather than jumping into one particular text. Um, but we're going to begin tonight in Luke chapter 23, verse 32 to 34. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Let's pray. Our God and Father, May you bless the preaching of your word this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. Those words that Jesus said that forgive them for they know not what they do mark one of the central tenets of what Easter is all about. The Easter is all about the forgiveness of sins that is offered to the world. Forgiveness is central and at the heart of the Easter message. Yet for many, forgiveness is actually a bit of a problem with the Easter message. You see, everyone likes the message of forgiveness when it's universal and automatic. That when Jesus says, Father, forgive them, it automatically means that everyone's just suddenly forgiven. And you sort of don't even need to become a Christian or anything. Everyone's just in. But as soon as anyone finds out that it's not an automatic inclusion into heaven that Jesus's death doesn't automatically mean everyone is saved. People begin to have a bit of a problem with forgiveness. People then start to ask the question, if God is loving and he loves his people, why can't he just forgive their sin? Why can't he just say, I know you've done the wrong thing. I forgive you and welcome everyone into heaven. Why must there be a cross? Why must there be punishment, blood, pain, torment, and worst of all, hell? After all, God, you require us to forgive others. Why don't you forgive us like that? And it becomes even more problematic when we're looking at someone we love or we know of someone we love who's on the brink of death and suddenly this necessity and this problem of forgiveness becomes a real problem because while someone's still living, there's hope, there's a chance that they may turn to Christ, but on their deathbed, as we look ahead into death and the, the eternal future, this is a real problem because if that person dies without being forgiven, well, then we know the consequence. This actually happened to me just last week. Just last week on Monday, I was going down into the Shire to the Juliana village to visit my grandfather, my opa. He was on his deathbed in palliative care. And I haven't had an incredibly close relationship with my grandfather, but I knew that he wasn't yet a believer in Christ, agnostic maybe not yet fully committed, unable to figure it all out. 
And so I knew that there's a problem. He needs forgiveness with Christ. And so I drove down there with my Bible and I sat on the ground beside his bedside and I pleaded with him from the gospel to put his faith in Christ. And as I looked at him, half the man he used to be, with half the vigor, just a bag of bones, a shell of the the vigor and life he used to have, I pitied him. I asked him, what do do you think about all this? And he said, I don't know. He could barely get the words out, but he was listening. He was engaging. And you look upon someone like that with sympathy and you think, oh, Lord, how can you not just forgive him? You know, maybe he's been arrogant. Maybe he's walked against you his whole life, but now. Look at him. There's, there's no fight left in him. There's no argument left in him. He, there's just doubt. God, why can't you just forgive him? Why can't you just forgive him? John Stott calls this the problem of forgiveness in his great book, The Cross of Christ. The question that many people have Why can't God just forgive our sins? You see that the forgiveness problem can be a problem existentially. Ah, we don't figure out how it works with God. And we're like, isn't he a loving God? It can be a philosophical one. How logically does it play out? It can be a moral one. Is God a monster because he doesn't just forgive sins? It can be an emotional one because we feel the weight of our sins and we think, oh, I, I, I want forgiveness. I need forgiveness and I can't have it. It can be an apologetic one. You're trying to reach out to someone and tell them the gospel and then suddenly they're, they're like, what? What do you mean? Like, what you, you mean more than half the world's population is potentially going to hell? And what about all the people that don't know Christ? The problem of forgiveness. And the reality is, is that we can't get over this problem too quickly or too easily. We can't skip it or or dodge it. But the problem with that actual question, well, the problem with that statement is the actual question itself. Why can't God just forgive our sins? And we're going to see later on in the message that actually the problem is in the question, but we're not there yet. Why do we have this problem? Why do we have this expectation that God would just simply be able to forgive us? It's not a new one. In fact, uh, the Bishop Amselm in the 11th century, he posed it like this. He said, if anybody imagines that God can simply forgive us as we forgive others, that person has not yet considered the seriousness of sin and not yet considered the majesty of God. Anyone who thinks, why can't God just forgive sin, has not yet considered the seriousness of sin and the majesty of God. And this is where Good Friday comes in. This is where all those readings and those songs come in. Because in the Good Friday story, in the message of the gospel, in the hill of Calvary, we see the seriousness of sin. We see the holy majesty of God. And we see the solution to those two problems. 
And so tonight's message, we're going to unpack those three points. Number one, the seriousness of sin. Number two, the majesty of God. And number three, the solution to the problem. And I'm just going to change my view because I'm looking at myself and I'd rather see all your faces. There we go. That's much better. That was very distracting. (laughs) Okay. Point number one, the seriousness of sin. Is our sin really that bad? You know, is it really that serious? You sin is a dirty word in our culture. It implies some kind of objective moral standard that we're held against. It may mean even that there's a God or a higher power that, that is going to judge us for our sins and potentially send us to punishment in hell. And so in our culture, we've left behind the term sin. Instead, we have disorders. Instead, we have addictions. Instead of sin, we have genetic problems. Instead of sin, we have background issues and problems with our parents and family relationship dynamics, but we don't have sin anymore. We have patients, we have victims, and we have those who make mistakes, but we don't have any more sinners. But biblically defined, sin is a very different problem. It's defined very differently in the scriptures. You see, sin is defined most, you know, the biggest kind of way we can define it is missing the target. It implies that there's a standard that God has brought out and that we've completely missed it, that we haven't done the goal to which God told us to get. And and so we're well off the track. Sin is biblically defined is defined as an internal problem, not just an external thing. Sin comes from inside of us and works its way out. It's these vile and disgusting things that we think of that overflow into action. Sin is stepping over a known boundary marker or breaking a known law. But sin is not just rule breaking. It's not just like there's this divine list and, you know, it just kind of appeared out of nowhere and God holds us to it. No, no, sin at its heart is breaking relationship with God. The first and greatest commandment is that we are to love God with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, and all of our strength. And sin is when we break relationship with God. John Stott says this, Sin is not a regrettable lapse from conventional standards. Its essence is hostility to God, issuing in active rebellion against him. Our sin is a serious problem because we are sinning against God. We're not just breaking rules. We are hostilely rebelling against the king of the universe. So sin is a big problem. But is it really our fault? You know, you might think like, you know, we all mistakes. We're born from Adam and Eve. Like, is it really like, why do we have to bear the responsibility for our sin? You know, we've got all these genetic problems. We get all these circumstantial problems. I don't want to sin. It just kind of happens and I fall into it. 
I don't know if you're anything like me, but I do not like to take responsibility for my wrongdoings. My wife will tell you that very clearly. I am a blame shifter like no other. As soon as I've made a mistake, I'm quickly trying to find some other excuse. It's great having kids because you can just blame everything on them and they can't defend themselves until they get old enough and then they figure out, hey, I didn't do that. You're like, oh no, okay, now I've got to take responsibility. But also if you're anything like me, I like to take responsibility for my achievements. So I like to take responsibility for my actions, but only my good ones. If someone comes up with a great idea, or sorry, if I come up with a great idea and someone else shares it, I actually want to kind of be tagged in that and be like, hey, actually just remember that the great idea came from me. <laughs> Thank you. But if someone came, if I came up with a really, what I thought was a great idea and it turned out terrible, I would not be putting my hand up to be like, that was my idea. Like everyone, I'm the worst person. I ruined everything. My instinct is to be like, oh, let that one through to the keeper. No one found out. Okay, that's good. If you're anything like me, you want to avoid responsibility for wrongdoing and gain responsibility for your achievements. Well, if you're anything like me, you're just like Adam and Eve. You see back in the garden, Adam and Eve blame shifted their way out of the fall. When they took the fruit and actively rebelled against God, they didn't want to take responsibility. God came to them in the garden, searching for Adam, calling out, where are you, O oh man? And Adam, you know, sheepishly is found with his vine, you know, whatever it was, fig tree, fig leaf, um, trying to cover himself up. And, and God says, why did, you, why did you sin against me? Why did you break the commandment? Did I not tell you to eat the fruit? And then Adam says, well, the woman you put here with me. And then God turns to the woman and the woman says, well, the serpent told me to. You see, right from the beginning of sin, as humans, we've never wanted to take responsibility for our actions. We don't want to bear the responsibility for our sin. Yet God always holds us responsible. You see, yes, they were tricked by the serpent. Yes, you know, maybe Adam wouldn't have taken the fruit if Eve wasn't there with him. But God still holds them responsible for their sin. And he curses them both. And they both get the judgment of death. They're separated from the garden because God holds us responsible, even though we don't like it. You see, when all the Nazi generals and sergeants and soldiers were put before the war tribunals, a lot of them tried to claim that they were just following orders. Yet in those trials, we held them accountable for their actions. We made them responsible for their sins. And it's the same between us and God. Our sin is a serious deal. And we are truly responsible for every single one of our actions. We can't escape it as much as we want to. And so what's the result? Well, John Stott says this in his book, The Cross of Christ. If human beings have sinned, which they have, and if they are responsible for their sins, which they are, then they are guilty before God. Guilt is their logical deduction, is the logical deduction from the premises of sin and responsibility. We have done wrong by our own fault and are therefore liable to bear the just penalty 
for our wrongdoing. Romans 3, 9 says this. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are all personally and individually guilty before God. Our sin is against the Holy One and we're responsible for it. And this creates a massive problem for us. How seriously do you view your sin? How big of a deal in your consciousness before God is your sin? Do you try and give excuses or blame shift? Do you try and minimize or touch it up a little bit when you come in confession? Well, according to Bishop Anselm, the the first way in which we get wrong the whole doctrine of forgiveness is when we have a small and diminished understanding of the seriousness of our sin. And we've seen just how serious it is. Okay, so if our sin is serious, then the next question to ask logically is, does God actually care? And that brings us to point number two, the majesty of God. We may be able to confess, okay, I'm a sinner, I've broken laws, I've, I've gone against the holy God, sin is wrong. But does God, like, you know, isn't he loving and good and merciful and righteous? Doesn't he love his people? Does God actually care about the sins that I've committed? Is God really that angry about it? Like, you know, I get it, you know, he doesn't like it. But isn't he able to overcome that dislike of sin because he loves his people? Well, John Stott again, he says this, which I think is really helpful. The essential background to the cross is not only the sin, responsibility, and guilt of human beings, but the just reaction of God to these things. In other words, his holiness and wrath. We've been dealing with our inadequate view of sin, and now we turn to our inadequate view of God's majesty. And to truly understand Easter, to truly get Good Friday, we have to understand both the seriousness of our sin and the majesty and holiness of God. You see, the Bible uniformly declares God as holy, totally separate, totally transcendent, and far above all other beings. God, the one true living God, is pure, untainted goodness. He is perfect in all his ways, in all his thoughts, in all his deeds, and all his plans. And in his being, he cannot tolerate evil. 
or evil people. You see, all throughout the Bible, even when the holiest of people in Israel came and met with God, they all experienced something of his fierce and majestic holiness. It was never a peaceful, lovely experience. Meeting with God was a frightful and dangerous thing because of his holiness that comes out against sin. You see, when Moses saw God, he had to be hidden in the cleft of a rock. When Isaiah saw a vision of God in the temple, he cried out in despair, Woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips. When God answered Job in the whirlwind, he despised himself and repented in dust and ashes. Ezekiel saw just a glimpse of God's glory, yet fell prostrate on the ground. And even the Apostle John, who walked and talked and lived with Jesus for three years, when he saw a vision of the resurrected Jesus in Revelation, he fell down at Jesus' feet as though dead. You could imagine God as the sun. We can see the sunshine, but we can't ever look at the sun. We can feel the effects of the sunshine, but we can't actually get into the sun lest we be burned up. That's what God is like in his holiness and his majesty. And whenever sin comes into contact with God, God's wrath flares up. God's wrath comes against the sin. He cannot tolerate it because it's opposite to his being. For sin itself is everything which God hates. Leon Morris defines wrath as this. Personal divine revulsion to evil. I'll read that again. Personal divine revulsion revulsion to evil and personal vigorous opposition to it. So we have a sin problem and we have a holiness of God problem because God is personally revolted by sin and divinely opposed against it personally. God is a personal being who takes sin personally and works against us as true human persons. And God never wants to diminish this image of himself. In fact, throughout all of scripture, God reinforces this separation between God and man. God calls himself the most high God, indicating that he's high up and we're down here and we can't get to him. God It shows in the very layout of the temple that there's a separation between us and him. There's some of the area we can go, but we cannot go into the most holy place. Do not come any closer, God said to Moses when he met him at the burning bush. There's distance that has to be there because of sin. Many times God is depicted as light and darkness having nothing to do with the light. Or God as a consuming fire, and anything that comes into his presence is burned up. The final image that the Bible gives about this divine revulsion towards sin is that of vomiting. 
The, 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 the land of Israel vomits out the people of God when they take upon themselves too much sin. You see, God cannot tolerate evil because of his majestic holiness and righteousness. And so when we see God as who he truly is in this lofty and high and holy position, this actually switches the problem and creates a whole new one. John Stott says it like this. The crucial question we should ask, therefore, is a different one. It is not why God finds it difficult to forgive, but how he finds it possible to do so at all. I'll read that again. The crucial question we should ask, therefore, is a different one. It is not why God finds it difficult to forgive, but how he finds it possible to do so at all. You see, the problem of forgiveness is flipped once we consider the seriousness of our sin and the majesty of God. When we truly understand this, we stop, we stop thinking, God, why don't you just forgive everyone? And we start thinking, oh my gosh, how can I be forgiven? How is it possible that God could overlook the sin of anyone, given that it's a personal offense against him? So what's the solution? How can a majestic God forgive the seriousness of our sins? And that leads us to point number three the solution to the problem. How can we solve this new problem? God being able to actually forgive our sins. And this is where we get to good, good Friday. Because of the love and mercy of God, there is a solution. We aren't left with the divine dilemma of our sinfulness and God's majesty because of Jesus Christ. You see, the confession of our sin can't take away our sin by itself. Repenting for our sin can't repair the damage we've committed against God. Feeling remorseful for our sin doesn't remove the offense that we've committed against the Holy God. We cannot fix the problem. We need a substitute. We need a savior. We need someone to stand in our place and make the repair for us. We need the God man, Jesus Christ, to take our place upon the cross and become the solution. Jesus is the solution to the problem of forgiveness. Jesus is the glorious solution. Good Friday, as you know, is the glorious solution to the problem. You see, where we make light of our sin and barely even blush at times when we commit all kinds of sins against the holiness of God, when we make light of it, Jesus stumbles over it. Remember Jesus in the garden in Luke chapter 22. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, 
Not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. We make light of our sin. But when Jesus considers bearing our sin upon the cross, he staggers. When Jesus considers bearing the awesome weight of our sin, he sweats drops of blood. We ask, oh, what's the big deal? Come on, God. I was just having a bit of fun. It's not that big of a problem. Why do you care so much about what we're doing in our personal time, God? We ask that question. But Jesus asks on the cross while naked, bleeding, and gasping for breath. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, Jesus takes our sin so seriously. The cross shows the seriousness of our sin. The Son of God had to be made a fool. The Son of God had to be subjected to torment and punishment and ridicule and shame and worst of all, to have the wrath of God poured upon him. We take our sin lightly, but God takes it so seriously. And we see that so freshly on Good Friday. Where we blame shift and make excuses for our sin. Oh, it was that reason or that person. Jesus takes personal responsibility for our sins. Jesus leaves his throne in heaven in holiness and majesty to be born as a man, to live a perfect life of true obedience, and then to come to the cross. And instead of saying, well, this is all your fault, I'm out. He drinks the bitter cup from the Father. And as he does so, our personal sins that we are responsible for gets transferred onto him. And now Jesus takes responsibility for them all. On the cross, Jesus becomes the liar. Jesus, the adulterer. Jesus, the thief, the murderer, the gossip, the the rapist, the slanderer, the lust, the dishonorable, the rude, Jesus, the nasty, Jesus, the abusive, Jesus, the impatient, Jesus, the selfish, Jesus becomes unkind, he becomes filthy. You see, we don't want to take responsibility for our wrongdoing, but Jesus takes responsibility for us. And so Jesus bears our guilt that we deserve on the cross. He stands condemned, even though he's innocent, and he's convicted as guilty. As we sung earlier, Oh, to see the pain written on your face, bearing the awesome weight of sin. Every bitter thought, every evil deed, crowning your blood-stained brow. This, the power of the cross, Christ became sin for us, took the blame, bore the wrath. We stand forgiven at the cross.
He takes our sins seriously. He bears the responsibility for it. He becomes the guilty one. And finally, he takes the majestic, holy wrath of God completely upon himself. God's holy wrath, which must destroy all evil, is turned and directed at Jesus. And on the cross, Jesus becomes the propitiation for our sins, the wrath appeaser. God places all of it upon him and expands all of his fury upon Christ so that there's nothing left to have anger or fury towards us who believe in him. Romans chapter 3 says, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. You see, on the cross, God's holiness and wrath is poured out upon him. And that problem is solved. The distance is destroyed. The curtain is torn in two. The light of the world goes dark so that we can enter into the eternal light. Through Jesus, through Good Friday, through his work on the cross, the problem of forgiveness is solved. Why doesn't God just forgive everyone? Wrong question. How can God forgive anyone? The answer, the problem of forgiveness finds its solution in the cross. The problem of forgiveness finds its solution in Jesus. John Stott says it like this. On the cross, divine mercy and justice were equally expressed and eternally reconciled. God's divine mercy and his justice were expressed and reconciled. So what ought our response to be? We've surveyed the seriousness of our sin. We've surveyed the majesty of God. And then we've surveyed the majesty of the gospel, that those two come together in Christ, that we can be forgiven. Well, John Stott again says it like this. We learn to appreciate the access to God that Christ has won for us only after we have first seen God's inaccessibility to sinners. We can cry hallelujah with authenticity only after we first cried, woe is me for I am lost. The only appropriate application tonight is to rejoice greatly in the solution that God has offered. To feel afresh the seriousness of your own personal sins against the holy, majestic God. And then to be flooded with relief that there is a solution. That you don't have to bear the weight of your sin. That you don't have to stand under the sentence of guilty, condemned and sent to hell, that it's been taken from you through 
the Savior. And then suddenly the grace of God becomes all so sweet again. Ephesians 2, 8 becomes the sweetest news in all the world. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Revel in his grace right now. Be mastered by the mercy of God this Easter. Let God's mercy and grace expressed in Christ ooze through your soul and your spirit. Let it soothe your conscience because now you are at one with God. Let it remind you of his eternal love for you and let it flow out of you into the way that you love and serve others joyfully, sacrificially, just like the Savior served you. Be mastered by grace this Easter and enjoy the free gift of forgiveness by putting your faith in Jesus Christ and him alone. And perhaps you're feeling the weight of your own personal sin. Perhaps you're not quite sure, have my sins actually been forgiven? How do I know for sure? Maybe you've not yet become a follower of Jesus. Or maybe, maybe you've been around church all your life, but suddenly you're feeling this conviction and this fear that perhaps I'm going to be held responsible for my sin. I don't know if Jesus has really paid for my sin personally. May I plead with you. May I commend to you to bring your sins to God, which you can do now, to bring them seriously and to bring them and ask for forgiveness. And you can do that without fear because you know there is a solution. And don't miss out on his free grace that cost him everything. Why can't God just forgive our sins? Well, because they are heinous, terrible, and against his personal nature and character and being. And he's a holy God and he cannot tolerate evil. And so he sent his son to be the solution to the problem of forgiveness. I'm going to take a moment now just to reflect for 30 seconds before we sing. So I'm just going to go quiet and then we're going to sing a couple of songs, um, but I'm going to pray before we sing the song. And so just spend a moment now reflecting on that message and on the goodness of the Savior and be mastered by his grace. Lord God, we thank you that you have revealed this truth to us, that Good Friday can be good, not because we minimize our sin and redefine it and reclassify it and distract ourselves into oblivion to run away from it, but because we can seriously consider it and we can humbly confess, I am a sinner through and through. And we thank you, Lord, that we're not left in that position. We thank you that you sent your son 
to bear the wrath that we might be forgiven. We thank you that we can sit and stand here truly knowing for all eternity we are forgiven and brought back into relationship with you. So God, would you please fill us with joy in light of your grace and may it ooze through us this Easter. May we be mastered by your mercy and changed as a result. In Jesus' name, amen.